We are speaking with scientist and academic Dr. Ugo Bardi. His books include The Limits to Growth Revisited, Extracted, How the Quest for Mineral Wealth is Plundering the Planet, and most recently, The Seneca Effect, Why Growth is Slow but Collapses Rapid. You can find his writings as well at cassandralegacy.blogspot.com. He's also on Twitter. We will be discussing a recent article he wrote analyzing historian R.J. Rummel's work on democide and mass extermination, pulled from the book Death by Government. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Barty, and welcome. Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure. Now, you warned that mankind is overdue for a new statistical uh, and perhaps historical cycle of democide, which can also be called death by government, mass extermination, catalyzed by small events or wars that spiral out of control in parts over dwindling resources. I wish it weren't so, but based on the data, I too have long expected a reoccurrence of such human behavior at some point in the future. Rommel details the intentional extermination of 260 million people by government and half a billion during the 20th century. You cite Steven Pinker's rosy view on the long piece, and I would personally tend to side more with Nassim Taleb's idea that the long piece is an aberration or an anomaly. Could you tell us what brought you to this point uh, in writing this article in your research and why you think the case is made statistically for another round of democide? Yeah, you know, you always write the article that you would like to read. So I was looking for data because we have some instruments, some tools for understanding the world around us that uh, just didn't exist before. So we can interpret things that in earlier times uh, were mysterious and unapproachable. For instance, this big, big problem of war. Because, uh, you know, everybody discusses war, nobody likes war, but wars do exist. So we have this big, big problem. What, what is the origin of war? But more than that, what is the frequency? What is the probability? What is the future or the trajectory? What, where are we going? And, then, and that's part of a study that I did of several other subjects in a recent book that I published this year, which is titled The Seneca Effect. Seneca is a Roman philosopher of about 2,000 years ago that he noted um, many things, but uh, the inspiration for my book came from a sentence by Seneca. Um, he said, you know, it is clear that things grow slowly, but they fall rapidly. He said more exactly, growth is sluggish, but ruin is rapid, which is one of those things that uh, everybody knows, but which are not easy to explain. So why is ruin rapid and growth slow? And there, are, there, are, there is a variety of cases of this, um, of this behavior. And we're starting right now to understand it. And clearly war is one of those things which you can describe as a rapid ruin because ruin, war is something that um, goes on uncontrollably started often without anyone wanting to do it, and then sort of rolls, rolls by itself, rolls on by itself, and you cannot, nobody can stop it at, at a certain point. So 
in my book, I didn't discuss war. It was, was more a technical, scientific book about complex systems. But then, I seeing the situation, how, is it, how, how it is around us, just turn on TV or, or look at, uh, at um, what you can read over the web and things like that, and you see that um, there are good evidences that uh, we are may be close to war. So I went to look for some data, and unfortunately, there is not so much that can be found in this field because we know a lot about wars. People have been describing wars over history for hundreds and thousands of years, but quantitative data are difficult to find. But if we look at the quantitative data we have, and that's the interesting part. It is already known. I didn't, I didn't discover anything. It is part of the pattern. We know that there are some phenomena, many phenomena in the world, which are not cyclical, are not controllable, but they do happen with a certain frequency. And they have this characteristic that the larger they are, the less probable they are, like an earthquake, an avalanche, a landslide, a volcanic eruption, things like that, they have a certain frequency. You know that at some point, in some places, you have to have earthquakes. You cannot say when, but you know that at some moment, uh, we will have one. And if you wait long enough, you will have a very large earthquake, say in California, or in Italy also is an earthquake-prone country. And we have had earthquakes, rather large ones, recently. And it is unpredictable. Cannot say when, but you can say, yes, there will be one here of some size at some moment at war. It seems that war follows the same law, which we call sometimes a power law from the mathematics of the, of the way you describe it. But it doesn't matter. It's a well-known phenomenon. It's a phenomenon that just happens. It is because it accumulates tension, it accumulates pressure, it accumulates um, a tendency of doing something at some point, some trigger releases the pressure, and then bang, you have a war. And it has happened. If you look at my article, you see the data which I took from studies performed in the past, you see that wars have been endemic over the past 600 years. There have always been wars here and there, mostly small wars, sometimes medium wars, at some moments big wars. And uh, there seems to be a proportionality of the size of wars with population. So we have more population, more probability for a large and very destructive war. And it seems likely from what we know that uh, we are moving towards some kind of very large war, or you can call it mass extermination or democide is the term used by Mr. Rommel. Professor Rommel has been studying these things, but he limited his, his study to the 20th century. We, we have some more data going um, deeper in history. And democides, that is the extermination of large numbers of people by governments, have been a constant over human history. For, um, for so many reasons, you can exterminate people for any reason, religion, uh, ethnicity, democracy, dictatorship, uh, um, economics, um, whatever. But 
people have, have been exterminated in large numbers, mostly by governments. And that's a democide, and it's a constant of human history. So I just wrote a paper in which I noted this phenomenon, and I said, well, why should we expect <coughs> this to stop? In some moment in the future, we may very well restart, and that's more or less the the history of this paper. And you uh, made an interesting point that on average, 10% of the global population is exterminated when these when this escalation happens, which would mean up to 1 billion people at present if we entered into a new era of democide and world war. Um, you know, the case you made that it could very well happen. Could we say it is inevitable? Would that be fair? And do you have any insight, perhaps, or imagining into what such a time period might look like in the 21st century? Well, as you know, the future is, uh, you know, prediction is very difficult, especially when it has to do with the future, as everyone knows. So what we can say is that the roots of the future are in the past. So looking at the past, we can say there is this kind of proportionality and some of the largest events in past history involved the extermination of about 10% of the population in this large mass extermination phenomena that we call democide. Now, we caution because always things change. We have trends, trends have been going on for 600 years, but it is not obvious that we last a thousand years or 10,000 years, everything can change. But as things stand, in my modest opinion, we are a big, we have a big risk of a new round of mass extermination because the conditions are very similar to those we had back in uh, the early 20th century. This is more qualitative. We don't apply, apply equations. We don't have models here. But you just look at history and you look at the literature of the years which the years before the Second World War, you saw the tension, you saw the demonization of uh, ethnical groups. You know, there, is, there was this idea that the Jews were the, the reason for all the troubles of Europe, so they had uh, to be eliminated or exterminated or whatever they, they were said to be because they were said to be evil. And, uh, and eventually, unfortunately, at the beginning, it was that's sort of a joke. Look, some silly people are thinking of this, but then it was done, unfortunately. And, that's, and that was um, a remarkably big, tragical, and horrible event. So what can stop the world from entering such a path again, uh, this time probably with new uh, scapegoats, new targets, new intermention, as they were said at the time, you know, the, the German word for subhumans, they had this idea that, well, these people, our neighbors are not really human, they are subhumans, so we can exterminate them. And if you look at what is being said in the public debate nowadays, I'm afraid that the situation is not so, so much different. So it is possible, I think. But that doesn't mean that it is unavoidable. That doesn't mean that it will happen in a specific span of time. This is really the limit we have when we try to understand the future. We have some idea what can happen, but it is very difficult to quantify the future. 
the approach that we have in using these models, these mathematical models that have been developed over the past few decades, these models that uh, of, of this critical phenomena, the future being a series of critical events which follow a power law, it is very similar to a much more ancient way of uh, not predicting the future, but being prepared for the future. And it goes back to Sun Tzu, who was the famous author, strategist, Chinese strategy. He wrote a book, The Art of War. The Art of War, he said, just at the beginning, he said, the general who makes a lot of calculations wins wars. And he was perfectly right, because what does it mean to make calculations? It's that you follow the possible paths of the future, and you are prepared for whatever happens or may happen. Not necessarily will happen, but may happen. So like a general, even today, generals make plans, scenarios, war games. They get prepared to what may happen. They don't say that what they are prepared for will happen, but they are prepared prepare just in case. And so this is the power of these methods of understanding the future. You try to understand what can happen, and you try to get prepared, to be prepared for that. Now, these models, which are based on the behavior of humankind over the past few hundred years, tell us that a new explosion of violence is possible, even likely given the situation, then the question is not whether the prediction is right or good. Hopefully, it is, it is not it's not good. Hopefully, it is the wrong prediction. But assuming that it is right, what do we do? Can we prepare in some way for that? Or can we avoid this kind of future? That's a big, big question. And, and discussing uh, on that point, you know, Rommel said that power kills, and absolute power kills, absolutely. <laughs> he cites one of the things that we can do is, as you say, is the democratic peace theory as one solution. But you also mentioned how, uh, or you uh, insinuate that Western democracies themselves have been responsible directly and indirectly for unleashing wars that have killed millions and could have potentially spiraled out of control. You know, Vietnam, three to four million people were killed. Uh, scientists did a study that up to one or two million people uh, died as a result of Iraq uh, and so on. Yeah. Uh, where does this leave us then in terms of a fail-safe against democide? Because, um, you know, democracy is one solution, but there seem to be, could we say there are signs of friendly fascism or soft totalitarianism in some Western democracies today and I mean, they could theoretically capitu capitulate to tyranny. Uh, well, this is uh, this is a uh, part of the of the the way things work. You know, wars like uh, Iraq, like Vietnam earlier on. Like Vietnam was part of the earlier poles, what I call a poles of mass extermination. That uh, means that we had this giant wave or a sort of a tsunami, if you like to call it with this term, uh, of violence that swept through the 20th century. It 
peaked around mid-century with various exterminations related to the Second World War and then subsidized the last, the last parts of this big wave where the Vietnam War, first the Korean War, then the Vietnam War, then it subsidized and we had a period of calm which started more or less in the 1980s, 1990s, more or less calm, not calm really because of course wars continued, but we had some 20, 30 years, 40 years of relative peace. It is something that, as you know, led some of us to think that we have we are now in a especially good and an especially good period. Like Steven Pinker, he said, the, the, the better angels of our existence. He said we're living in a safe period, which is true. Absolutely, we are experiencing right now a period of relative relative calm, relative, in comparison to what the world was during the Second World War, or what it was during the Napoleonic Wars, or what it was during the Thirty Years. Uh, the year wars, and that was a very difficult period for people. As, as we said at the beginning, we are talking about having one person in ten being killed, either directly or indirectly, because of the, those wars. So now we are not in such a situation. The probability that each one of us has to die by violence uh, caused by another human beings is very, very low. We are lucky. Now, uh, but still, the model, the idea, the examination of the past tell us that uh, small wars can, and sometimes do, coalesce into larger wars. So it could have happened with, uh, with the Iraqi war, could have happened, could happen today with a possible war in Korea. We don't know what would happen if somebody starts bombing here and there. Nobody knows what can happen. Right now we have a arc of violence that starts with Libya, goes through Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and luckily more or less it stops there, but it could expand. So uh, how how can we control such a situation is very difficult because we don't really have tools that uh, can help us to control violence. There was an attempt to build up such tools after the Second World War when we're, things like the United Nations were built in Europe, the European Union. The European Union was the direct result of the attempt to build up a structure which would be a barrier against new Measure European wars, but you see in what sad conditions is now the European Union because these barriers, this fail-safe maybe structure that should have avoided wars, are being dismantled one by one, and it is very difficult to see exactly what is the mechanism which is leading to this dismantling of structure, which more or less probably had a good role in, in guaranteeing to us these decades of relative peace. But eventually you see that uh, that uh, governments right now tend to think that they have a right to make war more or less when they want, whenever they want, in whatever form they want. And also this has to do with the availability of a certain kind of weapons, which are relatively cheap, like um, like drones, like automatic weapons, like these kind of things, which can do things that once were most, more expensive to do. So 
I, I, it is very, very, very difficult. The only thing I can say is that uh, situation. I, what I wrote in the in the article is that uh, one thing is that we are going through a big change in in. Uh, in the whole human civilization. So we don't really know if we can keep extrapolating the past trends. Maybe things will change so much that really we'll see something completely different because history repeats itself within limits. Some and people say it just rhymes, but, but we can never be sure of anything about the future. And could you touch on resources as being uh, playing into, yes. the, into the factor and resource depletion because that's a focus of, of your research? That's, a, that's the point that led me to, to approach this problem because my field, my real specialization is, uh, is resources, mineral resources in particular. And there is this idea that wars are always for resources. You go to war to get resources. Actually, you know, I think I think I changed my mind. I, I thought that at the beginning, but then I see that that wars have a dynamics of their own. I think that because everybody says that oh, there is a war. It is because there are some resources that somebody wants there. Uh, you, you read about Afghanistan. Recently, people have been saying, oh, look, there, is, there are uh, rare earth mines in Afghanistan. So that, that's the reason why we go to Afghanistan. We fight in Afghanistan or Iraq. There is plenty of oil in Iraq, of course. Then I, that's why we attacked Iraq, because there is so much oil in Iraq. But I think this simple causation with simple cause and effect is... I think it is wrong, honestly. It's, uh, if it is just a question of resources, well, what, why do you really start a war? It's much cheaper just tell people, well, look, we, we need those resources. Let's share them. It's, it, uh, it is actually wars, in my opinion, start because somebody has too much in terms of resources, not because there is a need of resources, because there are too many resources and people so decide to spend they can spend resources to make a war, but the war is a, a dynamic of its own. its own. I say in the book, it's an emergent phenomenon. In science, we use this, this term, uh, emergent, as something that is not written in the, in the way the system is assembled, but it emerges, it appears once you put together the parts of the system, like, uh, like uh, for instance, democracy is an emergent property of society. It's not written anywhere in human DNA or in human brains that you should or would or have a democracy. But eventually you put together a number of sane human beings who have reasonable resources at their disposal, who are not scared of anything in particular, they get together and they will build up some kind of a democracy then probably they will go to war because if they really <laughs> have sufficient resources, they will think, well, let's use these resources to do something. And one possibility of dissipating resources is to make a war. So it's probably another emergent property of humankind. It is not written in the DNA of humans. It's not written in the brains of humans. But somehow, once you put together a large number of human beings, and you make them build up governments, build up structure, industries, armies, and things. That's a moment war 
appears, and it is what we see in the historical record. Um, within some limits, we have to accept that this tendency exists and uh, try to avoid it as much as possible, but we have to take into account that humans are not angels. And at this point, I disagree with Pinker. I think that he said, well, it doesn't really say that humans are angels, but uh, the gist of this idea is that human, if you are not excited by some evil um, agents, they will behave nicely. I don't think they, they do. That's at least one possible interpretation. Okay, and do you have any final thought or comment to leave us with, uh, perhaps some parting thought from your latest book, Seneca Effect, or do we hope for the best and, and prefer, prepare for the worst uh, final thought? No, that's, well, that's right. That's, uh, that's a good point. Hope for the best and prepare for the worst. I think it's a, I don't remember if Seneca ever said that, but he could have said that. <laughs> it is a very, a very stoic kind of expression. This, this stoic philosopher was always prepared for the worst. And Seneca himself, as you know, the story of his life, he had a happy life, he was rich, he was powerful, he was respected, and eventually he was ordered to commit suicide by his former pupil, the Emperor Nero, and he did that. And so he was prepared for the worst, and he did what he had to do. And this, I think, is what we all can do and hope for the best and do our best. And how can people best follow and support your work? You are on Twitter. Uh, they can purchase your books on Amazon and Springer uh, website. Yeah, that my book. I wrote a book. Maybe someone would be so nice to read it and uh, maybe he or she will find this book useful, hopefully. But uh, we always keep going and book or no book, the future is coming and we will learn what it is. <laughs> and which blog works best to follow you? Because I know you have For this. Follow Me, the, the best blog is uh, Cassandra's Legacy. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Barty, for your time. Um, thank and you. Fasc fascinating Hello. conversation. It was a pleasure, and thanks for your interest. <laughs>